0: Argument first this morning, in number 891793, United States versus Thomas Garber, uh, Mr. Gerson.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Congress has given the regulators of the nation's financial institutions an extremely broad range of discretionary authority to achieve the specific policy ends of safeguarding the accounts of depositors and protecting the taxpayer-funded system of depository insurance. This is precisely the sort of discretion that Congress chose to protect against attack when, as a safeguard to the limited waiver of sovereign immunity embodied in the Federal Tort Claims Act, it added the discretionary function exception of 28 U.S.C. Section 2680. There are two questions here. First, whether the Fifth Circuit erred in applying an operational distinction to exclude coverage of the exception to the discretionary acts of supervisory regulators under the aegis of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board who, consistent with their regulatory charge, provided managerial guidance to the leadership of the Independent American Savings Association, a federally insured state-chartered thrift in which respondent was an investor. Assuming the Fifth Circuit did so err, the second question for this Court is whether the policy relationship of the challenged regulatory acts is so clear as to allow this Court to hold as a matter of law that the discretionary function exception
0: applies to them. Well, Mr. Gerson, you say there are two questions presented in your petition for certiorari. You only have one question. Are the two questions you stated both comprised within that question? Yes, they are, Mr. Chief Justice.
1: Although the Fifth Circuit held that the discretionary function exception covered the Board's decision to merge IASA with another company, obtain a so-called neutralization agreement from the respondent, and replace the IASA Board of Directors, it held that the Board's agents lost the protection of Section 2680, when they began to advise management and participate in management decisions, when they hired a consultant regarding finance and asset management to advise them and the board members, when they directed IASA to convert to a federal charter so that it would become the only governmental entity with power to control IASA, when they supervised the filing of litigation on behalf of IASA and consulted with the Federal Home Loan Bank Board in Washington about it, and when they they advised and recommended which of the institution subsidiaries should be placed in bankruptcy, and how, if at all, that should be done, and lastly, when they intervened with state authorities who had attempted to install their own supervisory agent. Seizing upon a footnote, in this Court's opinion, in Berkovitz the United States, adverting to the earlier Indian towing decision, which was not a discretionary function case, the Fifth Circuit held that the Board's officials, quote, were only protected by the discretionary function exception until their actions became operational, Inasmuch as the court recognized that the board officials were acting within their authority, saying that that was unchallenged, and also recognized that since there were no regulations guiding them at every turn, their acts were discretionary. And hence the operational criterion imposed by the court, we suggest, represented an erroneous understanding of both this court's decisions in Berkowitz and Indian Towing. The discretionary function exception, which is categorical and makes no distinction as to operational activities, uh, has meaning and antecedents which go back at least as far in this Court as Marbury against Madison in 1803. The Congress had that in mind uh, when it crafted the discretionary function exception as a safeguard, it not appearing in earlier versions uh, considered in in several Congresses. Uh, But of course, this Court recognized that every act has some element of choice in it. And hence, culminating with Berkowitz, uh, this Court has adopted a two-part test for evaluating whether or not the discretionary function exception should be given application. The first of those uh, aspects of of that two-part test is the question, was there a discretionary act? Absent that, the Court uh, has not recognized any uniquely governmental function. Well, well, what
0: what is the uh, case authority for this two-part test? Berkowitz,
1: Berkowitz. uh, Your Honor. uh, I think that that uh, that bifurcation is set forth clearly. Uh, I think also that the first time is rather easily met, that the Court of Appeals agreed uh, that the actions were discretionary, uh, but, uh, uh, but held applying this operational distinction as a starting point, which was kind of an ending point in Indian towing, uh, that uh, the uh, second, uh, or didn't get to the second uh, uh, test, which is, was the discretion based upon policy considerations? Uh, the Court of Appeals didn't engage in this inquiry at all. Uh, that, under Dalehite, Height, Varig, and Berkowitz, we suggest, alone requires reversal of the judgment below. We believe that all of the acts that I described earlier were indeed based upon policy considerations for for two reasons. Uh, First, each of them was part of the judgmental process of enforcing the regulatory program. They were literally in compliance with the regulatory scheme uh, set out uh, in in the statute and uh, ultimately refined uh, in a resolution of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board.
2: Mr. Gerson, uh, uh, what if uh uh the federal officials um, undertook to actually uh supervise the granting of particular loans deciding deciding loan by loan whether uh this particular uh, real estate is uh is is, is likely to be uh, uh valuable enough uh, to be sound collateral and so forth d- d- does that meet your test it might Uh, I know it might. It also might might not. Well, Uh, I don't
1: think think one can say uh, as as an absolute. The the Court has made clear that the discretionary function exception is not inherently categorical. If if it could be said in the the facts of a particular case that the survival of the institution, that the monitoring was close enough to require, with respect to the regulated person, like respondent here, uh, that there there was activity uh, that closely involved, in day-to-day operations. I suggest that it would be protected. That,
2: that is what makes it a policy decision. I
1: think there are two things that make it a policy decision. One, as I said, is it, it being consistent with the regulatory scheme and involving judgmental process and furtherance of it. The, se- the second, uh, which, I, which I believe is reflected uh, uh, in this Court's opinion in Boyle against United Technologies, is that its, that it's action derived from an essentially or uniquely federal interest What's different about these supervisory regulators from a normal director of the bank is their their focus. The normal uh, director is going to have as his uh, primary activity or her primary activity uh, maximizing the profit of investors, the supervisory uh, regulator.
2: Let me me get those two two things that make it policy are, number one, it has to be in pursuance of a federal purpose. Judgmental.
1: It it has to involve judgment in pursuance uh, of the regulatory purpose. And secondly... And second, uh, it... uh, has to be derived from what is a unique federal interest.
3: I did not answer the loan example, that's what I don't know
1: Well, the, under, under the uh, regulations in effect uh, at the time, uh, and indeed in a different place today, but, but, but still in effect, the supervisory regulators were responsible for going into the institution and rather than exercising ultimate authority, putting it into receivership, their goal was to work very closely with management, making a number of suggestions to see whether management uh, could uh, Eliminate unsafe no, I don't or mean to interrupt
3: practice. you, but just, just to focus on just Scalia's hypothetical. A particular judgment on whether to approve a particular loan or not, uh, without the federal regulators, they want to be sure they had good collateral and that the loan would be paid off. Would those same factors uh, bring it within the, the discretionary function if a federal official made the decision?
1: It might. And why, why I, I, I say said it, it might, one, but
3: I, 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 what other facts do you need?
1: Well, what is the unsafe or unsound practice? that the regulators are looking at and attempting to remedy. If, indeed, it involves the loan practice of the bank, if that's something that they're looking at specifically, I would answer the question, yes.
3: I don't. Well, they decide what the standards are for all the loans, and then they're applying those standards in a particular application, uh, to, to a particular loan application.
1: Well, the, and the they can
3: neither th- approve it or not, depending on whether they think the collateral is good. Is that uh, covered by the discretionary? Uh,
1: well, the way, that, the way that that would be done under this regime uh, is to suggest it to the to the uh, board that was in place. If the board refused to go along with those suggestions, if it, if it didn't comply with what the regulators thought was a, a, a sound policy, the regulators would then move to, a, to another step, a cease and desist order or, or a conservatorship or receivership. I don't know that we don't have it here, and I don't know that we would ever have a realistic situation in which the regulators actually were making the loans.
3: Well, here you have an allegation that the, the, the defendants arranged for the hiring of a particular consultant on operational and financial matters. Um, And supposing you had two qualified consultants uh, consultants, and they chose, I mean, two that met the same standards, but they chose one rather than the other because they didn't really check their background and find out they were a bunch of thieves or something. Is that covered?
1: Yes, I I suggest that it would be. The the discretionary function exception protects a negligent act. So the the fact, if the the exception applies, uh, it it isn't going to matter whether or not uh, uh, the the regulator exercised due care. So that's a secondary uh, question. So the the only relevant consideration uh, is, was there an act of discretion and was it in furtherance of policy? Here, the regulators were concerned about the uh, uh, quality of the bank's portfolio or the institution's portfolio and where it was going, and I suggest that on on the face of it, hiring an advisor uh, to look at transactions uh, is is, is both a reasonable and proper exercise of discretionary authority that ought to be protected.
4: Oh, so suppose the advisor was absolutely unqualified, had no experience in banking whatsoever. Again, the
1: discretionary function exception ought to protect that. Uh, the How is
4: that any different than, say, in the Varig case? You'll recall that was the, the, the spot inspection policy. But not involved in that case was an instance, a hypothetical instance, where an inspector might have made an inspection and, and missed a, a structural defect in the aircraft. Well, uh, I, I take it you would concede that in Vareg, that if the inspector had made an inspection of a specific aircraft and had done it negligently, there would be liability.
1: I would, because there there would be no discretion. That would be uh, uh, very much the same uh, as as the uh, as the Berkovitz decision, where there, where there would be a federal regulation, program, or directive uh, which.
4: Preempts you say there's discretion to hire a totally unqualified, incompetent consultant?
1: The issue is whether or not there's discretion to hire a consultant. Again, if there's discretion to do that, the act well, will be effective. That's
4: not how you phrase the issue. The, the issue is whether or not you have to inspect an aircraft.
1: Well, I, I agree. There is no regulation uh, that requires uh, a particular uh, method of hiring or a particular evaluation. There, is a, uh, there was a regulation and uh, resolution uh, in effect at the time that allowed these regulators to tailor supervision depending upon the the changing facts of any any individual case. Uh, Within that, uh, and indeed uh, both courts uh, below found that uh, uh, this hiring was a discretionary act, so that the question is, uh, under Berkowitz, was it an act that uh, was derived from policy? There was nothing that set forth a particular method of hiring a consultant, that set forth particular criteria for the hiring of, of, of a consultant, or particular acts that the regulators had to to perform. And so that's the reason that I suggest, A, that they had discretion, B, that that discretion related to policy. Hence, if they were negligent uh, in that that decision, it would be protected by the literal terms of the discretionary function exception.
2: Excuse me, it relates to policy if there's no regulation that governs it? Is that the test of whether it relates to policy? No. What what is the test of whether it relates to policy?
1: The, as I suggested earlier, Uh, Is it, under under Berkovitz, the the court reflected on the activity being part of the judgmental process of enforcing the regulatory program. In Boyle, uh, the court looked to what it found to be a uniquely federal interest, essentially a governmental function uh, different from what would...
2: I don't care what all the cases say. What what is your test of whether it relates to policy?
1: That it's part of the judgmental process...
2: Part of the judgmental process... of, Of
1: enforcing the regulatory program.
2: Of enforcing the regulatory
1: program. I suggest also, in, in this case, that uh, uh, that, that, there invo- that there is involved a, a uniquely federal interest, and that that is useful language derived from the statute to, to, to uh, uh, describe the applicability or not of the discovery. So, function. so
2: I assume that it, it, if, if one of the problems with these banks was they, they, they were they were getting sued too often for uh, automobile accidents by negligence because of their negligent employees driving the bank's cars, and if the federal uh, um, uh, examiners uh, should should prescribe uh, how to drive the car. You know, don't don't take a left turn or something like that. And if that should cause an accident, that would be a policy judgment then, right? Because it was in furtherance, judgmental in furtherance of the federal program.
1: Well, I would I would suggest that that did not involve a uniquely federal interest given the the legislative history, which which preserves uh, almost above anything else the the automobile accident as the the common law tort uh, uh, reserved. And and, and I would suggest that in that instance, uh, where, for example, if if, uh, hypothetically this uh, respondent were involved in a traffic accident with the regulator who was performing his duties, that there would be the potential for federal liability because there's no regulatory discretion. Similarly, if if, if the regulator insisted upon... uh, uh, the uh, directors hiring the regulator's brother-in-law it, it, to the extent that that would violate federal conflict of interest law there would there would be no discretion to violate a, a particular law which sets forth something a, a, a federal duty uh, if the regulator uh, decided uh, consistent with uh, his discretion to take his papers home at night the, that he that he was working on uh, in in pursuit of the uh, uh, the regulatory supervision and he lost them. That negligent act of losing the papers wouldn't be part of the uh, of the judgmental uh, process of enforcing the, the regulatory policy, and so it, it wouldn't be protected. Uh, I can think of some uh, cases uh, uh, that uh, bring to mind uh, uh, Indian towing if the uh, – if is part of their uh, – if, if they had greater authority than what they exercised in this case and uh, actually decided to uh, shut down the lights on top of a tall building that had a – a lightning rod and a plane crashed in it, or if they, they negligently uh, maintained uh, uh, machinery. There's no federal policy interest involved there, and so under Indian towing, Ray and e or other cases like that, uh, there would be the potential for liability. Even
2: if that was done to save money? Yes,
1: I, I think that that's right. Mm-hmm.
3: You're saying, for example, that a federal policy to uh, have the institution not make any bad loans would be enough to justify discretion on selecting which which loans are except on what you're not.
1: Well, it, it could, uh, Justice Stevens. That's not the case that we're facing here where, where the, the, the role of the regulators was to evaluate the portfolio and to use an advisor uh, in, in making that evaluation. But I, I suggest that if that were the focus of the regulation, if the, if the cited practice were the making of bad loans, that consistent with the regulatory purpose and exercising the, the judgment with, re, with respect to that, uh, it, it would be a protected act. Uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the regulators to, to involve themselves at that level in that in that, and,
3: and if there's a federal policy to favor good management, then hiring a consultant, of course, you've got discretion on which managers to
1: pick. Well, I don't disagree with that. I, mean, that would case, be,
3: I think that's your position. The federal policy is to run the company efficiently and effectively, and so anything that relates to choices on the effectiveness and efficiency of the business would be implementing federal policy.
1: I, I don't disagree with that. The, federal poli- the direct federal policy at play here uh, is to try to restore this institution uh, to what the regulators consider to be safer, sounder uh, uh, financial practices and returning it to management and leaving. That didn't occur, uh, but uh, that is not a, uh, an unknown uh, function. It's, it's one that uh, this Court recognized uh, in terms of its cousin, the, the banking industry, back in the, in the Philadelphia National Bank case, uh, where, it, where it noted that the uh, federal supervision of banking uh, has been called probably the outstanding example of the federal government of regulation of entire industry through methods of supervision, also noting, as in this case, that the, that the, because of the way that the system works, that the uh, the regulators are likely to follow the suggestions uh, that the uh, supervisory, that the directors are likely to follow the suggestions that the uh, supervisory regulators
2: make. Mr. Gerson, I, I, it doesn't seem to me that it's, it's, uh, it's fair play to uh, to simply uh, uh, make an automobile driving exception to your principle is, is because the legislative history makes that clear. I mean, it seems to me automobile driving is excluded because it's not a discretionary function, and, and whatever your definition of discretionary function is, it has to exclude automobile driving. And I don't see how. Uh, the, let's let's say the post office. If the post office were still a full full dress federal agency, and you have a post office driver who's delivering the mail. I mean, that's certainly a federal policy. And in, in the act of it, he gets into an automobile ac- uh, accident. It seems to me that that would meet your, your definition of being in, in performance of a, of, a, of a federal function. I,
1: I respectfully disagree, Justice Scalia. The, where, the distinction that I would draw is that the driver is not exercising regulatory discretion. Of course, he's deciding whether to turn left or turn right or, or speed up or slow down. But what he's not doing is making any evaluation of the, of the matter at hand, of, of the, uh, the health of the institution, the policies that the institution ought to uh, undertake to, uh, uh, to, to return itself to what the regulators uh, consider to be healthy. Uh, there is no, there's no regulatory discretion. Well, the
2: post office doesn't regulate. It gets mail from here to there. He is performing that function of getting the mail from here to there. Are you saying the function only applies to regulatory agencies?
1: No, I, I'm saying that the discretionary function exception doesn't apply to the driver doesn't apply to the, to the, to the federal government to, with respect to the action of the driver because the driver is not exercising regulatory discretion. That's the distinction that I would draw.
2: Regulatory discretion?
1: Yes, acting with judgment in furtherance of the particular regulatory policy. I suggest that that's what the Congress intended to...
2: So if it's protect. a federal government that does not regulate but that just provides federal services, there's no regulation of private activity involved. It just gives out money or does things of that sort. There is no possibility of having a discretionary function exception at all.
1: Well, I think there's a possibility, and as much in, as in Berkowitz, the court described uh, uh, the, the, the second uh, fork of the test as being in furtherance of policy. I, I'm ah, sure so that, it
2: doesn't have to be regulatory I'm sure policy. that some,
1: I, I think it's most likely to ah. come up in a, in a regulatory mm-hmm. sense, but I, I, one can envision activities that are, are not purely regulatory. Oh, a whole lot of policies. activities. Yeah. Of course, the, the individual... Uh, who commits the particular act in question has got to be charged with with, uh, carrying out that particular policy, or or creating it, or doing something along those lines, except that 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 is an activity which I I think is likely spelled out in in regulations as to to how one performs it and what one does. There's very little choice that relates to policy that's left to the driver of the the wagon or, or car.
2: It depends on how you decide define policy.
1: I think, I, I think that that's correct, and I'm trying to define it in terms of what this Court has, has had to say in cases on the subject and what the Congress had to say uh, when it created uh, the exception and the limitation uh, upon the, uh, to the exception, with particular reference to automobile accidents. I agree it, 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 one ought to have a, a, consist- a theoretical view that's, that supports the, uh, uh, the exception to the exception, and, and I think that there is one, which is that that driver is not exercising any policy judgment. All he's doing is driving a car.
4: Does your exception apply whenever policy considerations might influence the judgment or when they do influence the judgment?
1: I think that the answer has to be the, the former rather than the latter. If, if, if it's not the case, what we would end up with is a, a full-scale trial in every case that, in, that involves uh, uh, the raising of the, of, uh, the defense of, of discretionary function. Uh, Even even in this case, uh, while while the respondent suggests that his case is unique and there's no floodgates, we now have uh, in the the Justice Department 321 tort cases involving the savings and loan system. Uh, And I would suggest that uh, uh, what the Court had to say in in Dale Height, uh, which which, uh, was that one only need read the, the, the discretionary function exception in its entirety to conclude that Congress exercised care to protect the government from claims, however negligently caused, that affected the governmental function, that you would be acting contrary to that if we had to have a full-scale hearing to decide in each and every case what the regulator did rely on, so the test ought to be susceptibility.
4: Well, it seems to me your test necessarily is fact-specific in many cases.
1: I agree that it's fact-specific in many, if not most cases, because you need to look at the facts to see whether there is an activity that requires the exercise of discretion. But if you reach that plateau, and if it's susceptible, if the activity is susceptible, to the exercise of discretion and the furtherance of policy, that that ought to end the inquiry. I would like to reserve the remainder of my time, if I might, for rebuttal.
0: Very well, Mr. Gerson. Mr. Lowell, we'll hear now from you.
5: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, using the current savings and loan crisis as its cover, The United States mischaracterizes the Fifth Circuit's holding, and the factual setting of this case, to raise the stakes for your review. As to the facts, the Court is being asked to make what amounts to initial findings of fact from extra record materials not relied on or even mentioned by the District Court and not submitted to nor even used by the Court of Appeals. For example, that Independent American was an unhealthy thrift in 1985 and 6 when these regulators acted what the motives of the regulators were when they took action, that the respondent was not the intended beneficiary of the regulators' actions, or what reports were available to the regulators in 1986. This is not the appropriate place for that kind of fact-finding, and where there was a similar need for record development in Berkowitz, this Court required a remand. As Justice Kennedy just pointed out, these are very fact-specific decisions that have to be made. Indeed, of the joint appendix before this Court, 15 of the 21 pages are the complaint in this case, and that indicates all the lower courts had before them, and it is the lower court's opinion, based on these facts,
0: that is on review before this court. Did the District Court dispose of this as a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment, Mr. Lowe?
5: Justice Rehnquist, as a motion to dismiss on the pleadings, accepting, theoretically, the respondents' allegations as being true, but developing such a broad exception under the Federal Tort Claims Act that no balancing, no policy, nothing was considered. The government's argument is essentially that the Fifth Circuit applied some mechanical policy versus operational test to decide this case. However, to posture it that way, the United States mischaracterizes the Fifth Circuit as stating that anything labeled as operational necessarily falls out of the, uh, the discretionary function exception. Challenge the government when it rises in rebuttal to point to the Fifth Circuit saying that anything that could be labeled operation
0: necessarily falls out of the function. But, Mr. Lowell, the Fifth Circuit opinion, as I read it, did rely on some sort of distinction, which I don't find in our cases, between operational on the one hand as as the counterpart of of discretionary.
5: Justice Rehnquist, I think the Fifth Circuit followed your precedence to a letter.
0: They start with... I'm the Chief Justice.
5: Sorry, Mr. Chief Justice, I do suggest that the Fifth Circuit followed your precedence to the letter. What they did was start with the phrase operational, as used in Indian towing.
0: Which, which was not a discretionary function case.
5: Only because the government conceded it, clearly well,
0: that... Uh, Mr. Uh, Law, the, the, the court said in Indian function, we we're not dealing with discretionary function because the government didn't make that argument.
5: But what the Fifth Circuit did was not... Look at uh, the appendix to the government's petition for cert at 7a. If the government were correct, and all that was done here was a mechanical application of Indian towing, the Court of Appeals would not have said, as it precisely says, that Indian towing is not dispositive of this case. And look what the Fifth Circuit did thereafter. It went right into the analysis of Dale Height, right into the analysis of Varick, and right into the analysis of Berkowitz. What better could they do to pay allegiance to your precedents than doing the balancing oh, if, that you if, set
0: out? The, the, your answer to the question... Where does the word operational come from in our discretionary function ex- cases? You say it comes from Indian towing. No,
5: quite.
0: What case does the word operational come from?
5: Go back to this court's holding in Dale Height, where the court said that the negligence in that case was on the planning rather than the operational level. But what's interesting is that many courts and the government think that that's all the Supreme Court said in that case. But, you know, Justice Reed's opinion went on and it had a very important conjunctive. Justice Reed's opinion states that it was at the planning rather than operational level and, and it's a very important and, involved considerations more or less important to the practicability of the program. You start with a decision about how you characterize it as planning or operation, but that's not enough. You go on to see how it fits into the regulatory scheme. And that's exactly what the Fifth Circuit did in this case. It calls it operational on the first part, but then it does that same kind of balancing as Justice Reed suggested in Dale Height, to get to the determination of how important that decision was to, in the words of Dale Height, the program or the practicability of the program. Under the proper analysis that this court Excuse has me, set out, if, if, if you
2: go on to that second step anyway, what's the use of the first step? I mean, what's the use of, of deciding whether it's planning or operational?
5: I think it is an aid and only an aid to look back at some antecedent policy to determine whether or not the act, as later this court determined in Berkowitz or in Dale Height, is the kind of act that is so governed by regulation. For example, in Dalhite. I mean, down to the level of what bags to be used in fertilizer, what mm-hmm. coating to be used, mm-hmm. how the temperature should be, are all governed by regulation. Mm-hmm. I think when you use a, a handy phrase as planning or, or operational or policy, it just means that it's a way to characterize the activity. But what, it's not
2: all it does. What's the use activity, of characterizing it is what I want to know. It could I, be at the planning level and not be so important to the furtherance of the of the program. It could be at the operational level and be important. Justice Scalia, so I, I take that a, first step.
5: I think it just helps in determining the scrutiny a court gives. I mean, I think there's an extra warning, if you will, for decisions that courts concede are on the planning level. I think, therefore, I guess the government has a better presumption, if you will, Mm. that it affects some kind of regulatory policy than when it can be characterized, and many words have been used by the courts, operational, proprietary, uh, ministerial. I think it's just a kind of a careful way that you can determine what kind of presumption. The government would stretch that to be a total presumption. I think it's just a handy phrase. I think what's important, though, and what the government mischaracterizes is that the Fifth Circuit did not simply do this mechanical operation versus policy. If that was the case, the Fifth Circuit's decision could have been as short as the district court and be three pages long. Instead, it went on to the kind of balancing that you talked about, the court talked about just two years ago. Under that proper analysis, Justice Scalia, what happened was that the Fifth Circuit looked at two things. They looked at Varick's quotation of the nature of the conduct, not the level, to determine that only ten of the thirty-one initial paragraphs in the amended complaint could survive. Interestingly, all those occurred at the same operational level. They then looked at Berkowitz to see if there was any choice involved, and then, if there was a choice involved, whether it was the kind Congress intended to protect, insisting through the normal regulatory acts of whether to merge independent American, what kind of people to send into an independent American, versus the extraordinary acts of setting salaries, picking consultants, handing collateral, dealing with loans. As much as they may try to disguise it, the petitioner... Well, so, f-
0: Mr. Oll, does, does, does the fact that the things the govern, government did in a particular case were extraordinary, does that bear on operational versus policy?
5: No, not necessarily at all. I think the fact that they're extraordinary here points out, it's not so much, you know, again... Well,
0: but uh, you, you, you say it, it, it doesn't make any difference?
5: I think it's... So, It's not outcome determinative. It's not that because... why, why,
0: why, Why does the Fifth Circuit mention it then if it has nothing to do with it?
5: I think when you can label something, because it points out that there was no antecedent policy, the fact that it's extraordinary gives you warning and gives you insight to determine whether there was any policy... That governed, dictated, or in any way blessed
0: the acts that were taken below. Does does the fact that it was extraordinary, you think that militates against the exercise of of the discretionary exemption or for it?
5: I think the fact that it's extraordinary means that there is no policy that is... Can, you, can you answer my
0: question? I asked you, do you think, the, the, does the presence of something that's extraordinary militate in favor of the discretionary exemption or against it?
5: I think, in the way you've asked it, the fact that it's extraordinary militates against the against application it. of the discretionary function exemption. That's not. It's. It's. It's not impossible to hypothesize some facts that have never been done by a regulatory agency, but would still be somehow caught up in a policy or dictated. For example, I, I guess in Dale Height, I think it was rather extraordinary in Dalhite that there was all these activities, bagging, coating, fertilizer at certain temperatures. Up until that point, that was fairly extraordinary. However, there were very precise regulations antecedent to those actions that protected it under the discretionary function exemption. Here, there are no such regulations of any kind. I think as much as they may try to disguise it, petitioners seeking immunity for any act taken by the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, and by extension to other regulatory agencies, as long as some choice had to be made, without an inquiry into what kind of choice or why the choice was made. That is, whether the choice was part of or not part of a real regulatory scheme. In the district court, the government asked for and got this very broad exception which encompasses the rule, so that any act taken, quote, in extension of the discretionary function is itself discretionary and protected. In the Court of Appeals, with victory in its hands, the government asked and said, there is simply no such thing in a thrift regulatory context as a decision to regulate on one hand and the decision to take over the management on the other. And just an oral argument... Mr. Gerson stated that now what they were doing was looking for any act protection which was, quote, consistent with regulatory scheme, or, in answer to Justice Scalia's point, quote, part of the judgmental process of enforcement. This is just the next in a line of cases in which the United States is asking this Court for a broader exemption from liability than Congress ever intended, or, as the Court has stated repeatedly when it says the Federal Tort Claims Act is a broad waiver of immunity. In Varick, they asked for an exception for what they then called core governmental activities. In Rainier, they asked for what they then wanted, which was uniquely governmental capacity. In Indian towing, they asked for what was then called uniquely governmental function. In Berkowitz, they asked for an exemption in the same words they use on page two of their brief before this court, for acts, quote, arising out of regulatory programs. And just six minutes or ten minutes ago, the government asked for acts which, quote, are derived from uniquely federal interests. In each of these cases, the Court has rejected the government's attempt for such broad exemption in words almost remarkably similar to that Mr. Gerson stated just a few minutes ago. In the district court, the government got its broad rule. That is, it got protection for any act which is an extension of a discretionary function. And so the district court did not carefully analyze the conduct alleged or allow any discovery to develop the kind of record this court had before it in Dale Height in Varick, in Indian towing, in Rainier, and the kind of record the court stated it needed to deal with the second part of its recent Berkowitz decision. The United States seems to acknowledge the scanty record by feeling compelled to add so many facts of their own from so-called background materials, which dispute the facts as they are alleged to be. For determining the issues in this case as required by looking at conduct as spoken to in Varick and the method and manner of the choices made as spoken in Berkowitz, there are only a handful of facts that are necessary. First, respondent left his thrift Independent American in 1984 for reasons having nothing to do with Independent American. Second, at the time, Independent American was a healthy thrift with a positive net worth. Third, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, through individuals on the scene, took over the day-to-day management of that thrift, including picking employees, setting salaries, When, when, when,
0: you, when you say took over, Mr. Lowell, do you mean against, the, without the consent of the respondent, or with the consent?
5: With the consent, Justice, Chief Justice. Um, the issue in, of in whether there's actions- consent is not
4: dispositive of whether or not the discretionary function exemption applies. Are their actions constituted more than simply giving advice...
5: Yes, I I like that the government, even recently in oral argument, characterizes this as giving, quote, managerial guidance. As the Court of Appeals rightly noted, out of the mouths of the regulators on the scene came the actions of the people in the thrift. This wasn't advice. This was direction. This was actually doing. They may try to characterize this as advice. Well, did
4: the regulators purport to be exercising legal control over the actions and the policies of the thrift?
5: I don't think that there was a predicate. Well, there was no predicate that would traditionally be in place. For example, a conservatorship, a receivership, a cease-and-desist order, no supervisory agreement of any kind. So if you say to me, were they exerting some legal authority, they weren't predicating their acts on any piece of paper or decision by the bank board to justify their intrusion into this thrift.
4: Well, are there any specific acts that they took in the name of the savings and loan on their own initiative?
5: Oh yes, they took many acts in the names of the savings alone. They hired a new consulting firm. They set the salary of the chief operating officer who used to be an employee of the Federal Home Bank that, was, that, was
4: that mediation or did they set the salary? They, they they, you
5: know, not only did they set the salary, the man who got the money was the man who set the salary. And this is one of the problems with a record that is in the state that it's in right now, which is on a motion to Smith when you have notice pleading. If we were developing the record, you would find many of these acts were not even remotely taken in the name of any regulatory agency. They were all taken in the name of Independent American.
2: When you say they set the salary, you mean they told the person who set the salary what salary he would set?
5: I mean that this man, who was an employee of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Dallas and was moved from the Federal Home Loan Bank of Dallas into Independent American, set his own salary, and
2: did so in this mode... What do of you mean by he set his own salary? Did he sign a piece of paper that had the legal effect of setting his salary, or rather did he tell the person who had that power? He went to the, the place latter. where checks are written in Independent American,
5: and he said, write me a $108,000 check as a signing bonus. That's about as close to setting your salary as you could possibly get in a factual context. The person person to
2: whom he said that was the person who had the authority
5: to pay that amount or not, correct? That person
2: could have said no.
5: That person could have said no. Justice Scalia, I don't think that any of the discretionary function cases will turn on whether or not the acts of the government are taken kicking and screaming or taking by the fact that the people go along, it is the actions themselves that I, I just want to know
2: what you mean by the fact that he's in mean he, the that he did I don't mean that it. in the
5: dead of night he came and wrote himself a check. Somebody
2: else had the power to do it and, and he had power over that person. Correct. Okay.
4: That's
5: exactly what happened. In addition to these various acts which cannot be deemed just... Well,
4: well, what power did he have over that person?
5: He was put into Independent American as the Chief Operating Officer. He had the power to hire and fire everybody else in the thrift. And not only was he... Where, he is not, the,
4: where is this alleged in the complaint? This is not
5: alleged in the complaint. This is the problem I have with answering questions that are factually based, as Justice Scalia did, from what I know to be the facts,
4: rather than the state of the... Reg- well what is there in the complaint that indicates that uh, the government and its regulators took active control as opposed to simply offering advice?
5: I think that the paragraphs of the complaint that set out the impendix say that they actually set the salaries...
4: No, it says it mediated the salary salary dispute. If that's the one you're referring to, that's at D at page 15. 15. That's all that it says.
5: That reference covers the fact that we are talking about, Justice Kennedy. Again, one of the issues that I have to address with the court is the fact that in the complaint, which was written three and a half years ago, at a time that the government had all the documents in this case and the government had all the witnesses in this case, the notice pleading required gave adequate notice to the government that this wasn't a failure to warn case, this wasn't a VARA case where you were concerned about whether or not to assert regulatory authority. I think that neither the District Court nor the Court of Appeals had any problem discussing these facts and determining, especially on the Court of Appeals level, which of the 31 paragraphs went to things which could be called discretionary and which are the ones that deal with a kind of involvement that go beyond the discretionary function exemption. In light of all these active, not-just-advice activities taken by the Federal Homeland Bank Board, the fourth important fact was that there was no supervisory agreement in place and no regulation or no guideline dictating any of the conduct that we challenge. And the last important
3: fact... May I go back to your salary example for a minute? Supposing the uh, government agency had a policy that whenever they got in this position with a a, a financial institution, that they would uh, set the management salary at the prevailing level in the business community right there, and this is exactly what they did. Would that be... Covered by the discretionary...
5: uh, In the way you asked me the question, yes, it would be, because you started your question by saying, let's say they had a policy of setting the government of the salary with a prevailing rate. The interesting thing in this case is that the government in all the litigation thus far, even in the facts which they put into footnotes in the briefs before this court, can't point to a single policy antecedent
3: to the acts of... So we should read your complaint as saying that they did these things without any policy preceding the specific acts that would have called for these things being done.
5: That's right, Justice. I see. The last fact was that these actions taken when the Federal Home Loan Bank Board was making decisions caused Independent American to lose what they estimated some $400 million when the respondent left his thrift in a positive net worth situation.
2: In addition to adding facts... Mr. Loeb, you know, just as agencies sometimes make policy by regulation, uh, they sometimes make it by adjudication uh, on a case-by-case basis. So you can't say simply because they chose to do it this way that that wasn't an expression of the agency policy. They might have been doing it the same way elsewhere. The fact that there's no regulation governing it does not mean it's not a policy decision. You often make policy case by case. We make policy case by case.
5: Your question would assume that these people at the time actually – it depends on whether policy is the result of any action taken by a regulator or the motive of the regulator. It seems to me that if anything a regulator does, ergo makes policy, then you're right. On a case-by-base basis, everything's policy, therefore you don't need a policy uh, qualification to the discretionary function exemption. But your hypothetical strikes me as at least indicating that there was some balancing involved before the Act was committed. Policy is not the result of a regulator's action. It should be the reason for a regulator's action. And in this case, there's no evidence that there was, and we allege that there was not. In addition to adding facts, the United States urges this Court to look at its case in context, first in context of the savings and loan crisis, and then in context of its entire regulatory framework. Well, the real context are the facts of this solvent thrift in 1984 and 1985, not what the government wants to allege the crisis to be in 1990, and the entire regulatory framework is an issue before this Court only as the United States wants to raise the stakes to have it so. In addition to mischaracterizing the Fifth Circuit, the United States asserts the wrong Supreme Court precedence. This case arises in a tort setting similar to that suggested by this Court in its recent its decision. That is, a case where federal officials act without there being regulations governing their action. It is not governed by Varick, despite the United States' attempt to make it so. It is true that neither the FAA in Varick nor the Federal Home Loan Bank Board here had extensive regulations, but that is where the similarity ends. Varick dealt with the regulation of third parties, and here it is their own conduct in dispute. That contrasts the traditional regulatory law enforcement role of agencies versus what some courts have called proprietary or ministerial. The challenge in Varick was in effect to the decision about the degree of supervision whether to include all planes, some planes, whether to do spot checks or not. The United States tries to make this case such a similar challenge by raising what is in effect a red herring that what we are challenging is the decision to do informally that which they could do formally. First, we are not challenging that decision. It makes no difference to our analysis of the law whether or not they took these actions in the most formal setting or not. Second of all, the suasion that they talk about occurred after the takeover. There was no individual balancing for each of the acts that we allege to have been done negligently. Mr.
0: Law, does the board have authority in some circumstances to appoint a conservator? Yes, it does. Well, what what if it had gone ahead and appointed a conservator? Would you have any action against the board if you found that that they appointed someone who was just a lousy conservator, and by doing some research they could have gotten a much better conservator? No. Why not?
5: I think that their decision of who to put in to the thrift would be protected as a discretionary function. As the Fifth Circuit, by the way, held that we had no cause of action left as to who was sent to Independent American. But if you then say that this conservator on the scene decides not to collect on loans and destroys collateral and then hires employees in a poor way and then doesn't take the day-to-day functionary activities, I think the people left at the thrift after the conservator was done would have a cause of action if...
0: Against the conservator or
5: against against the government? Against the United States, whoever put in the conservator. If, but only if, the conservator's actions on not collecting on the loans, setting the salaries, taking those kind of management decisions did not have an antecedent policy that either dictated or blessed what he or she did on the scene. It's simply not the act, but you must go back and determine what the reason or what the nature of the choice
0: was. And the question would be, what was the government's policy with respect to what kind of a conservator to appoint?
5: No, not what kind of a conservator to appoint. I I think that that decision, as you pose it, that question, as you pose it to me, would be immune. I think if they decide that John Doe ought to be there, as opposed to Sally Rowe, I think that decision, as the Fifth Circuit rightly held, would be immune under the Federal Tort Claims Act.
0: And what is the the nature of the claim against the government in this case? Well, they did
5: not point a conservator, number one. No, I mean mean
0: in the hypothetical case. You say say there would be a claim against...
5: If the the conservator is an employee official of the United States acting under the authority of the regulations. Now, I don't know in our hypothetical whether the conservator plays that role, but I'm assuming that he does, or she does, then the answer is yes. Their duty would be because they were still in the, uh, the clothing of the United States. Their cases, and there are very few of them, that have raised this all say unanimously that such a fact hypothetical that you and I are positing raises liability. That's the Emsch case of the Seventh Circuit, the uh, Carter case of the District of California the Hartford decision and Franklin National Bank. Now, they all say that under certain circumstances, few of which were found in the facts of those cases, by the way, after discovery, after they had a chance to prove their case, rose to the level of being actionable, but all of them say that the FDIC or the FSLIC can be held liable for those kinds of negligence
2: acts on the scene. Mr. Lowell, in, in your response to the Chief Justice, you you insisted that there have to be that there there must have been an antecedent policy. That that is really what you, what you're urging. That there has to be an antecedent policy.
5: I mean antecedent, not. Counting out the possibility that you stated that policy is made at that time. It doesn't have. I'm not oh, saying that so you. Cannot, it has to
2: be antecedent, not excluding the possibility that it doesn't have to be antecedent.
5: No, it has to be antecedent, either already existing or the act has to take place on the basis of some policy-oriented decision being made right then and there. But, but it can't be after the fact. They go back and say, by the way, everything a regulator does is policy.
2: Well, but 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 isn't it in 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 a sense? I mean, if. if You you can have a policy that says, no no loans on real estate worth less than $500,000, or you can have a a conservator uh, in in possession who then, when the first thing comes up to him, says, I'm not going to make a loan on property worth less than $500,000. Why is one a policy decision and the other one not? This court has stated that
5: in order to be protected, there has to be economic, social, or political policy considerations. Now, I think that means that either they have to pre-exist the decision or the decision has to be seen as being made pursuant to them. But if what that means is that after the fact, the government can say that it was policy by result, I don't think you have an exception. I think that, therefore, all you need to decide is, was the Federal Home Loan Bank Board wearing its Federal Home Loan Bank Board jacket? Did they go in that day and did they take action? And I don't think that's what the precedents of this court mean, is the way that you apply the discretionary function exemption. At least that's not what they've said and you've said as recently as two years ago in Berkowitz. One thread throughout all the cases, no matter if they're expressed as policy or discretion or planning, has been that actions are protected if their challenge threatens or jeopardizes the feasibility or practicability of the program. So stated in Dale Height when it said that must be on the planning level and be important to the practicability, so stated in Barrick when they said that decisions are covered only if they directly affect the feasibility and practicability of the government regulatory program. The Fifth Circuit distinguished carefully between those acts that could affect the program, the merger of Independent American, which kind of person to put into Independent American, versus those that could not, uh, mediating actual salaries, hiring their own contacts as consultants, deciding which litigation to bring, and disposing of collateral through putting it into bankruptcy. Those acts that are left hardly threaten the feasibility of any program or existing policy. Indeed, the only policy pointed to in the government's brief runs directly contrary pointing to informal suasion as being appropriate only in cases of small problems, not cases as they allege independent American to be in desperate need of regulatory oversight. There is no policy threatened here except if the United States is able to persuade the court that immunity is coterminous with any regulatory choice that they make. So that any choice they make, if second-guessed by any court, goes to their regulatory authority.
3: Mr. I, Lowe, can I ask you one question? Maybe it's too elementary, but... Uh Did the Fifth Circuit hold that as a matter of Texas law, the portions of the complaint that are are not within the discretionary function exemption actually state a cause of action for a tort?
5: They say that it does state a cause of action for a tort and leaves the question of whether or not Mr. Gilbert, the respondent, has standing to bring them under Texas law. But that standing question as the discretionary function is very fact-laden, and I suspect it would depend on what Texas law holds on those issues. But they do say it goes back for that purpose. There can be no policy threatened here unless the court accepts the government's proposition that anything taken in a government context by a regulatory agency is policy-laden. When the facts or law are weak, the United States again raises the specter of the floodgates of litigation or stopping the government in its tracks. So is the message of amicus in this case. They did so in Varick, they did so in Rainier, they did so in Muniz. And they do so again here. While they point to many cases in the Justice Department, they've only been able to point to one in the courts, notwithstanding that there's a year and a half since this decision has been made. And that one is an independent American case just brought by a different plaintiff. The United States wants this court to consider the context, but we would submit that the immunity they seek takes one important player, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, out of the context of the checks and balances that now exists. Directors and officers are liable civilly for their actions. Congressmen can be voted out of office or disciplined for their actions in the savings and loan crisis. Only the Federal Home Loan Bank Board would be taken out of the loop if the government gets the extent of immunity they want. Mr. Gobert is stuck in the middle of a struggle between Congress, the court, and the executive, where the executive keeps seeking a broader immunity, says it doesn't want absolute immunity, but only posits an automobile accident again and again as the only kind of act which arises under the Federal Tort Claims Act. They seek a rule not so much that the king can do no wrong, but that the king can do wrong only when he's driving his royal carriage. One issue before the lower courts and the Court of Appeals was whether or not the regulatory takeover of day-to-day management of a healthy thrift can ever be actionable. Not that it is actionable, but what it can be. If the government finds in the record that is developed below that they have grounds to show discretionary function, they can move again, for summary judgment, the correct vehicle for testing these very fact-laden decisions. Therefore, for the reason set out in our briefs and in its decision, the court should affirm the Fifth Circuit's case and decision, give respondent his day in court to prove, as those in Dalehite and Varick and Indian Towing and in Berkowitz were able to prove that the government has done him wrong and that he has an apt remedy.
0: Thank you, Mr. Lowell. Mr. Gerson, do you have rebuttal? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. <clears throat> Let us see
1: what it is that the Fifth Circuit actually did hold with respect to the operational distinction. At 885, Fed Second at 1287. The Court specifically held, relying upon that Indian towing, quote, did, however, establish a principled distinction between policy decisions and operational actions. This distinction still retains its force today and is dispositive of of these cases. Uh, At page 1289, the Court of Appeals held, quote, Thus, the FHLBB and FHLB Dallas officials were only protected by the discretionary function exception until their actions became operational in nature and thus crossed the line established in Indian towing. The Fifth Circuit's reference to Berkowitz cannot represent any shorthand for the appropriate test. Any such suggestion, must be undone by the Court's reference to Indian towing as the source of the operational distinction. In terms of Indian towing, which, as the Chief Justice pointed out, was not a discretionary function case, operational means no discretion at all, as well as no federal policy countervailing the the, the state, in that case, Good Samaritan law. Uh, This complaint was amended uh, after some period of time, and the uh, particular acts uh, set forth uh, are the ones that the Court of Appeals uh, relied on. However, it's very clear, I suggest, that there is indeed an antecedent policy here. Uh, There is a statute, two statutes, uh, uh, which are cited, a regulation in furtherance of that, and in particular, a resolution, all designed to further the twin twin antecedent policies of protecting depositor accounts uh, and uh, safeguarding the uh, taxpayer-supported federal savings and loan insurance fund. Uh, Those policies long predate this case, as does the resolution, statute, and regulation, which premise the uh, regulatory activity here. Uh, As to the particular acts uh, in question, uh, I would note that at least some courts of appeals, including the Fifth Circuit, uh, in a case we cite in the brief, Williamson against Department of Agriculture, uh, has uh, recognized that decisions regarding the creditworthiness of individual loan applicants are discretionary functions in the context of a federal loan program.
2: Mr. Gerson, uh, it, it, could you give us an example of an act that these regulators could have taken that they thought was in furtherance of their mission to, to salvage uh, these SNLs? These which would not come within the discretionary function exemption any anything at all other than I driving driving a car
1: I suppose that the well, – I, I set forth more than just driving the car. I talked about the uh, uh, decision to hire in violation of conflict of interest standard, taking the papers home and, and, and losing them, uh, the uh, uh, failure to adequately maintain uh, machinery that causes damages. I don't think – I can't think of anything with respect to Mr. Gobert as the regulated person or entity in this case on, on these facts that would fall without the exception. But I do suggest that there are any number of things where where the – you can hypothesize that the regulators here, as in Berkowitz, I assume that the regulators in Berkowitz did not intentionally violate the, the policies and procedures that stripped them of discretion. Yeah. Uh, and if, something, if there was something like that here, and the, and the regulators violated those, those policies, albeit unknowingly, uh, then I think under Berkovitz uh, uh, that, the, uh, that, ne- that negligence would be actionable.
2: Just, just tell me again why failure to maintain the machines, or closing down the lights, the other example that you gave, why that would not come within the discretion? I mean, it's all done to save money to this institution that is losing money. Why would it not come within the exemption?
1: I I think it's unlikely that such activities would involve directly the federal regulatory policy interest here and and, and the exercise of of judgment with respect to those things. I would countenance that under some circumstances where the life and death of the institution uh, was, was at issue, that perhaps there was a policy interest that transcended this activity. But I would also suggest that in virtually every such case, and we, we have nothing like it here, there is a specific federal policy mandate to obey the traffic laws, to maintain equipment, uh, to pre-check vaccines before, before they're cleared.
4: I would suppose, uh, in your brief, it sounds as though, it, it, in some places, it sounds as though you were saying that because advice rather uh, is all that is involved, not any orders or anything like that, that that's a, a separate defense, uh, wholly aside from discretionary function.
1: No, I, I don't think that it, I don't think that, you it, mean, if we're saying that, we shouldn't be saying that. Well,
4: that's the government, the, so just giving advice can, uh, which happens to be followed, uh, could uh, uh, impose... Uh, Liability on the government, even though the, this is a private corporation that has no, uh, uh, is not compelled to follow the advice.
1: Well, the, the issue of, of the suasion and the fact that the advice could be avoided relates to, a, to what I suggest is a different point, which is that, that what the respondent here, we suggest, is trying to litigate is what he calls in his brief the extra regulatory takeover of the institution. And I would suggest, in the sense that at which point as the, this individual felt that that had occurred, uh, there are other kinds of, of causes of action in other places to litigate such a claim, that, a, that it's clearly within congressional intendment that a, a tort activity, a tort action, is, is not one of them. Uh, I, I suggest, though, that uh, there is no operative, there, there is no inherently operative, uh, inherent distinction uh, related uh, to, to, the, to the use of moral suasion. This Court uh, has noted, uh, as I say, in Philadelphia Bank, uh, in Philadelphia National Bank in 1963, uh, that uh, moral suasion was, was commonly used, and that that's the backbone that's Mor- that of Moral suasion? Economic suasion? Uh, well, economic suasion, I guess you would, we guess would call so. it. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's a fairer point. And that that sort of advice is generally followed, and that's what makes for a successful system, a, a system which is described in the, in the regulation here. I see my comment. Thank
0: you, Mr. Gerson. Uh, the case is submitted.